The book of 1 Corinthians is actually a letter written by Paul, one of the first Christian church planting missionaries to a young community of Christ followers in the ancient city of Corinth, a city infamous for its debauchery and idol worship. It was a city not unlike our modern day Las Vegas. About three years prior to the penning of this letter, Paul arrived in Corinth for the first time and began sharing the gospel, discipling men and women into maturity in Christ and raising up leaders within the church. When he left a year and a half later, the church in Corinth was thriving, but it didn't last long. While Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, he began hearing some heartbreaking reports about his Corinthian brothers and sisters. They were straying from the faith, misrepresenting Jesus, and distorting the gospel. Some of them were engaged in dark sexual immorality. Others were forming factions, segregating themselves from the rest of the body based on which gospel teacher they preferred or what spiritual gift they had been given. The church was filled with pride over their tolerance of sin. They had rejected Paul's authority and were rapidly going astray from the truth. Rather than scolding them, Paul begins his letter by reminding them of the extravagant love of God poured out on their behalf. In spite of their blatant rejection of God's authority, God loved them deeply. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. There's not a hint of disdain. Paul's heart, just like God's heart, is for their good and for their restoration. So if uh, you have been part of Mosaic for any given period of time, you probably know by now that we have been traveling for the last decade, really, uh, through the chronological journey of Scripture. We started in Genesis chapter 1, and we've been working our way through, slowly but surely following the story of God and the story of us. And uh, in the most recent season, the last two years or so, we've been chronologically in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament, which is the, uh, the historical unpacking of the early New Testament church. And we've been following Paul, one of the great missionaries, one of the great church planters on his journey. And uh, he is uh, oftentimes penning letters back to some of the churches that he had planted in. And so what we do is we pause there. We sit with Paul in his little cubicle and we watch him pen the letter and we learn from the penning of that letter. So most recently, toward the middle of 2015, we found ourselves uh, with Paul as he was penning the letter to the people in Corinth because he had planted a church there. And after leaving there, uh, the church had slowly eroded and become a church that was not displaying the gospel at all and was living much more like the culture than they were like the gospel. So Paul is writing this letter back to the church in Corinth, and that's what we found ourselves in uh, over the last while. And then, of course, we did the Get Loud initiative, and then the Christmas season hit. So we've been out of the book of 1 Corinthians for a while, and hopefully that little snippet caught you up a little bit on what context we are living in. And part of the reason why this book has been so interesting to us is because the context of the people of Corinth is very similar to the context in which we live in today in our Western culture. Because they lived in a city 
that was prosperous, a city that uh, you were really full of opportunity. The land of opportunity was Corinth, a transient city where different cultures and realities moved. So in many ways, they were very globally minded. They had a good picture of the globe. They understood the multicultural reality of Rome. So this was a city that really saw a lot of the same stuff we live with regularly. And so the challenge is that the church in this city faced and the slow erosion that took place uh, on that church because of the culture feels very familiar to us. Uh, I had a friend who lived here in the U.S. He was from India originally. His name was Sequant. Uh, and a number of years ago, he was a professor here. He had the opportunity to go back to India uh, to start a school there and launch that. And he had uh, seen two of his daughters born here in America and raised here in America. And they were still in their pre-teen elementary age uh, uh, sort of life stage. And when he made the decision to move back to India, I, I said to him, uh, that, that's awesome. Uh, you know, how do you feel about the reality of taking your two girls at this formative stage of life and pulling them out of the land of opportunity and placing them in India where they're going to face some dramatic challenges there that they would not otherwise have to face here? And this is what he said to me. He said, well, no, I'm far more afraid to raise them in this culture than I am in that one. The real dangers are in this culture because they are subtle and they are, they are thrown at you every day unrelentingly. And so my daughters will find themselves captivated by things I have no interest in them finding themselves captivated by that will subtly erode the very realities of the gospel in them. And though I wholeheartedly agree with Sequant's assessment, here's what I've discovered. See, in my home, I live in a multicultural home. I was born and raised in South Africa and then moved to the U.S. when I was in my teen years. So I was raised in a completely different cultural context than the Western cultural context here. Then uh, here I met my wife and we uh, saw four of our children born into this culture and grow up in this culture. And then we saw four of our children emerge into our home in our adoption. And they grew up in Ethiopia. So they grew up in a third world context in a completely different cultural context. And here's what I've discovered in my home, right? That the realities of challenge and temptation exists in every culture. It really doesn't matter what culture it is. There is no one culture that like, oh my gosh, that one's temptation free. That one's easy. This one's hard. They're just different. The temptations and struggles that my children from Ethiopia face are very different than the temptations and struggles that we might face here. Now, of course, that's changed because now they have absorbed this culture too. So they get both, right? Uh, and the struggles I faced in my uh, life in South Africa versus here is just different. But the fact of the matter is, anytime you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the gospel, the story of God's redemption, impacts your life and recalibrates your life, then you are going to live in a tension between the gospel's culture and whatever culture you live in. And the gospel's culture is going to tell you one thing, and whatever culture you live in is going to feed you a whole different set of stuff. And you are going to live in the middle of that tension. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth right now, and he's writing to them uh, in the middle of this kind of life. You see, most of the people in Corinth that belonged to the church in Corinth were not churchgoers at all when Paul arrived. 
They were part of the normal everyday life of Corinth. And when Paul arrived and shared the gospel, they came to know Christ. They joined the church and they became the biblical community, the the Christ followers, the, the gospel posse, right? But the fact of the matter is they had grown up in a culture of idol worship, worship of, of uh, illicit sexuality, of, of, of uh, prosperity, of uh, a self-centered view of life, a, a view of life that said whatever pleasures you do it. It was a culture that functioned on please the stomach, right? So this is what they had lived in. This is what all their friends lived in. So when they became part of the church in the newness of it all, it was all good and fine. But at the end of the day, who are they going out for barbecues with? With their friends from the culture. Where are they hanging out? In the same places they used to with their friends. And so inevitably, slowly but surely, the discussions, the realities, the information in a culture throwing stuff at them too began to erode them slowly but surely. And this is why the church in Corinth ended up with all of these struggles that Paul is now writing to try to say, whoa, 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 step back. Remember who you are in Christ. In the most recent part of this letter in chapters 8 and 9, Paul, after dealing with a number of the direct specific issues that had popped up in the church, was now dealing in more of a general sense and saying this to them. Listen, in its essence, here's how it works. You were once lost. You were once uh, lost to all the good things, life, light, and freedom. And you were doing life your own way, chasing after the wind. And, and in, within that life, you had certain rights and entitlements, and you took them, because that's what you did. You were bred to do that. Whatever you have a right to do, go do it, and sometimes take what you don't have the right for, right? Then Jesus rescued you. And one of the things that you are called to now is to live out making the gospel beautiful. And to do that you will often be called to take the rights and the, uh, the, the uh, entitlements that are yours and actually lay them down for the sake of the gospel. That yes, I have a right not to, I have, I'm entitled to this, but I'm going to choose to lay it down. He essentially said this, when Jesus came, he purchased you. He purchased you. What did he purchase you from? He purchased you from sin and death. He bought you back from the dead with his redemptive work. And in purchasing you from the dead, he purchased you into freedom. Remember, the Bible says we were once slaves to death, slaves to sin. And now we are slaves to righteousness. It's a beautiful uh, changeover because once we were captivated by sin and now we're stuck with freedom. Isn't that kind of cool? You are a slave to freedom. You are stuck with it. No matter what you do, he's already bought it for you. You can't shake it. You can't get rid of it. No matter what, he has rescued you. That's an incredible thing. So Paul's saying this, essentially any rights you had, any entitlements that were yours belong to who now? Well, to Christ, because you belong to Christ. So lay them down for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the beautiful nature of the gospel. This is what we get to do. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But the reality is when we leave the doors of the church and go back out into the cultural context in which we live, here's what happens. That sounds great until somebody hurts your feelings. That sounds great until your spouse isn't acting appropriately. That sounds great until your children are misbehaving or until your parents are a little nuts, right? That sounds great until the world doesn't do what it's supposed to. Then it doesn't feel so nice to lay down your rights and your entitlements, does it? Then it feels much nicer to hold on to them and go, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And so we find ourselves out in this real world with this real invitation to lay ourselves down for the gospel. But when we actually have to do it, it is very hard to do. And since we are walking into a cultural context that we grew up in, that we're familiar with, that is our default setting, very often we will find ourselves living in the tension between what the gospel is inviting us into and what the culture is informing us to do. And we call that tension between the two worlds temptation. Okay, It is when we are tempted uh, to move back into our cultural context and out of our gospel context because it feels better, it feels easier, it feels nicer, and so we're quick to move toward that end. So what Paul's going to do right now for the church in Corinth is say, look, I understand the tension in which you're going to have to live. But I want to equip you, I want to encourage you that as you step into the real world to lay down your rights and lay down your entitlements, that you can, in fact, engage in that tension, that temptation, and there's some beauty in that that you ought to be aware of. And that's what he's going to do now. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it is on page 661 of the Bibles that we provide on your way in. Or if you're using a smart device or one of your own Bibles, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. So Paul now is going to jump into this world of tension we live in. And here's how he begins. 1 Corinthians 10, 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Can we just stop there? Super weird, isn't it? It's super weird. I mean, let's just admit it. What on earth is going on here? Okay, we're going to talk about the tension between worlds. There's a cloud and there's sea and they're baptized in it into Moses and it's beautiful. And you all are going, we're, we're tracking with you, Renault. Keep going. No, I don't, what is going on here, right? Why is Paul beginning this way? Well, what Paul is about to do is actually awesome. See, Paul as a communicator is going to take a story from the past. He is going to demonstrate to the church in Corinth how that story is a beautiful picture of their life. And then he's going to extract some principles from that story to help them understand the context in which they live. So what is the story that he's referring to? Paul is now going to take us back and the church in Corinth back to the time of Moses. And if you remember, Moses was the one that God used to set the people of God free from slavery in Egypt. Before that great move, crossing the Red Sea and getting freedom from Egypt, they really were not the people of God yet. We kind of had inklings that they were becoming the people of God, but really you'd had Joseph and the, the 12 brothers. There were no 12 tribes yet because they were the 12 brothers just emerged in Egypt and the people grew there. And so it wasn't really until Egypt that they became a nation and that God set them apart to be his people. Yes, he promised that in Abraham, but we didn't see the fruition of it until now. So they're enslaved in Egypt, and God sends Moses, the great redeemer of that time, 
and he walks in and he leads the people out of Egypt and he leads them by the presence of God, a cloud, and he leads them across the Red Sea, which was ultimately the final act of setting them free from Egypt because that's when the Pharaoh was pursuing them. And even though he was pursuing them, it was the crossing of the Red Sea that set them free from Egypt. So what he's saying here is I don't want you to be unaware of the story of your forefathers because in Moses, when the great redeemer came to redeem them because of God, because God sent him, God showed up in a cloud, gave them his presence, baptized that nation through the crossing of the Red Sea into a journey that would lead them to the promised land. And so he was rescuing them from their slavery. So God is setting this up through Paul now so that the people of Corinth can understand a principle that we're going to get to in a second. But look, it goes on. It doesn't stop there. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock and the rock was Christ. So do you, do you see how it's connecting to our story now? Look what he's saying. The people of God were once enslaved by Egypt. God sent a redeemer and rescued them out of Egypt. He gave them his presence and power in a cloud. He baptized them as a nation through the crossing of the Red Sea into a journey toward the promised land. And he provided for them the spiritual nourishment they needed in the manna from heaven and the spiritual water they needed from a rock that followed them that was Christ. Just like we were enslaved to sin, God sent the Redeemer, Jesus. He baptized us into the journey toward the promised land. In that journey, he provides for us the spiritual food we need, the bread of life, Christ himself and the scriptures. And he provides for us the living water, Christ himself through the scriptures, so that we might live in the freedom that he has set us free for. You see how their story is our story. They are a rescued people, just as we are a rescued people. So now we're all on the same page. That's where Paul is going with this. They're rescued, you're rescued. It's awesome, it's awesome. And then he says this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What a bummer. <laughs> I mean, what a bummer. It was all exciting, wasn't it? rescued, there's a power of God, there's a baptism, and it's a promised land. And they blew it. They totally blew it. They, 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 they didn't stand firm. They, they, they didn't believe God. They, they had the tangible, direct rescue of God before them in great supernatural acts. And when they had the opportunity, they completely ignored God, worshipped idols, ran from Him, and God was like, you fools! That's their story. So exciting, isn't it? God was not pleased because in the wilderness, they were overthrown. By what? By the life that they had lived, by the old ways, by the enticing realities of the culture around them. They constantly found themselves in different, different cultural contexts and whatever was shiny in that cultural context, they ran after it. Every time they were a little afraid because the circumstances weren't quite what they wanted, they stopped believing God's provision and tried to provide for themselves. Every time anything went any way that they didn't like, they grumbled and complained. Every time anything happened, they jumped off. Look, he actually describes this entire thing. But before he does, he, Paul writes this beautiful sentence. Now look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. 
that we might not desire evil as they did. See, he's saying this story that happened back then, it was actually for us. So that we would see what they did despite what they had seen. And we will be wise enough not to fall the way they fell. That's what he's saying. This is for you guys. It's for me. It's for us. Look what he says. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Saying, remember them? Second, second anything didn't go their way? Off to the idols. The idols will do it for us. God, I don't know where he is. He's on a mountain somewhere. Take a look at this. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See, he's saying, listen, I'm going to teach you about the world out there now and how to live your lives in this powerful gospel-centric manner where you are laying down your rights and laying down your entitlements for the sake of the beauty of the gospel to become ambassadors of Christ and live your lives for His sake. And when you do, and you're in the tension between two worlds, the cultural information and the gospel's reality, I will teach you how to live there. Let's start here. Your forefathers saw it all and they blew it in the desert. And don't be like them. That's where he begins, right? Because the consequences of their actions were dramatic and destructive to the realities of the gospel and to their own lives. It led them out of freedom into bondage. Why would you want that? That's what he's saying here. And then he says this. He has his big therefore. Whenever Paul writes a therefore, you know he's saying, since we know this, let's take a look at what our conclusion is. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. What an interesting way to start, isn't it? He says, okay, in conclusion to our forefathers' stories, let's start here if we're going to be dealing with the tension between two worlds, temptation. If you think that just because you belong to Jesus, that you are now immune to temptation and immune to falling for temptation, then you are a fool. That's what he's saying. Don't think just because you're saved that you now full of the Spirit and in Jesus can walk into any reality out there on planet Earth and you just, whatever temptation comes, you'll just be strong enough to stand against it. So what he's saying here is if, if, if pride has so shaped you and I as Christ followers that we would say that what it means to be strong is to be able to walk into temptation and stand against it, then we don't call that strong, we call that foolish. Because you and I are as susceptible, as vulnerable to falling for temptation as our forefathers were when they were rescued. See, what he's saying is this, they were saved... They had God's presence. They had the law. They had the promises. They crossed the Red Sea. They saw God. They walked with Him. And they blew it. So, if you think, I have Jesus. I'm full of the Spirit. So now I can live however I want out there because I am immune to temptation's cause and I will not fall for it. You're going to find yourself falling for temptation constantly. Because it's not how it works. Just because you're saved doesn't mean 
you won't fall for the things of this world and for the cultural's the culture's information, the culture's invitation, the culture's enticements. Oh, you will, just as easily as I will. So he says, lest you think, oh, I got this, I got this. Don't be a fool, don't be a fool. If you dabble with temptation as though it is nothing, you will fall for it. Now, when Paul writes that down, what is our initial response to that? As Christ followers, who want to follow Jesus and don't want to fall for temptation. Here's what, he, here's what he's saying, okay? Don't be naive. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're immune to, to, the, to the falling for temptation, okay? What is our tendency? Hide! Run away! Don't go out there. Don't go out there. It's bad. There's temptation everywhere. Stay in here. And we gather our children in our homes and we drive from our house to our church and we gather in our churches and we only let our children watch Veggie Tales because that's the only thing that will keep them safe from temptation. And we, we go on to Plugged In and if the review so much as says anything other than five-star friendliness, we don't let them watch it because temptation is everywhere. And we sing Kumbaya together and we gather ourselves and we go, if we just stay close and we stay away from the world, then we won't be safe from temptation because we are vulnerable and we will fall if we go out there. You know what we do? We kind of live that way, don't we? And it is exactly the opposite of the gospel's invitation to step into the world and to be light and salt to the world. And so we hide from the world. And in hiding from the world, we actually don't make the gospel beautiful at all. We just tell the world all the gospel is, is something that comes and locks you into a church somewhere and keeps you safe from the terrible passions of the world. And everybody in the world goes, we like these terrible passions. I don't want to be locked in a church. And we go, yeah, well, we secretly do too, but we're safe here in the church, right? As though Paul knew that that would be the immediate response if the conclusion is to stay safe from temptation, what you got to do is be uh, ready to realize how vulnerable you are and be afraid and, and don't be naive and, and be vigilant and watchful. The very next line he writes is this. I, I love this. Look at what he writes. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So, so right off the bat, he goes, listen, don't be naive. The temptation is real. And if you are not wise just because you're saved, don't be naive enough to think that that's going to keep you from it. But then immediately he says, listen, hold for a second. There is no temptation that you will face out there that is so big and so bad and so horrible that it will guarantee to sink you because you are too weak to stand up against it. There is no temptation that is not common to men. So you don't get to pull this one. If you're hiding from temptation, that's one thing. But if you walk out there and every time you're tempted, you just fall. You know how often we do this one? Oh, well, you know, it's just harder for me than it is for the rest of you. You don't understand my past. You don't understand my dysfunction. You don't understand what I was raised in. You don't understand my spouse. If you knew my spouse, then you'd understand why I'm falling for temptation all the time. You don't understand my kids. They drive me nuts. You don't understand my parents. They're crazy. You don't understand. See, you don't understand. See, because of my personality, I'm just, I, I just have these tendencies, and so I kind of end up there. And he goes, hold on a second. 
Yes, personality plays into it, and circumstances play into it, and, and environment plays into it, and relationships play into it. But all of those temptations, all of them, none of them uh, are temptations that are not common to all of us in some way. They just show up in different forms. So if you think that temptation, when you fall for it, it's just a, it, it's just a reality that you have to live with, you're missing the entire point. Temptation is not something you have to fall for. Do you see how he's beginning to lay that on the table? Don't be naive enough to think that you'll never fall for it. But don't be naive enough to think that you're guaranteed to fall for it. Because you're not. There's a middle ground here that he's about to give us. A gift he's going to give us to say, you can live the way I've called you to live in the midst of temptation without falling for it because it is common to man and I'm going to equip you to be able to deal with it in a manner that allows you to endure it. Watch. This is what he does. We're all in the same boat, he says. We're all in the same boat. So watch this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, he says. I'm going to stop there. There's a comma there. I'm going to stop there for a second. I love that he just writes those three words first to start this next sentence. He doesn't give us a practical jump and he's about to do that, but he starts with this one. You want to overcome temptation? or rather the falling into temptation. You want to do that? You want to be able to face temptation and overcome and, and not be overcome? Well, start remembering this. God is faithful. That is the central reality to everything that we will need to be able to enter into the world of temptation and not find ourselves overcome. To remember that God is the faithful one. He is our way out. He is our strong tower. He is the place by which we overcome, the person who overcomes for us, in us and through us. And so if we try to do it alone, then we will not overcome. But God is faithful. Now, he's not going to leave us there. Don't worry, God is faithful. He's going to go, there's a practical component to this that comes with that faithfulness. Look how God is faithful. Look at this. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it okay three incredible realities god gives us here one he says this listen very carefully god is faithful because first and foremost as you step into temptation you will not be tempted beyond your capacity now, I just want to be clear, this is not an individual thing. Don't worry, you know, I'm a little weaker in this than you are, so God won't let me be tempted by that, but he'll let you be tempted by that. That's how we usually use it, right? Oh, don't worry, you have certain strengths in you, and God won't tempt you beyond your capacity. That's not what this is talking about at all. Here's what God is saying. If you don't know me, you're going to be overcome by every temptation. You have no capacity for it. None of us have the capacity to overcome any temptation. But once you know me, there is no temptation that will come your way that you do not have the ability to overcome. Do you see what he just said? He starts by saying, don't be naive in thinking that just because you're saved, you can overcome temptation. But then he also says this, don't be afraid that you might be overcome by temptation because you don't have to be. I have already equipped you through the power of the Spirit, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, through belonging to me, to be able to overcome temptation. So there is no temptation that will come your way that you cannot overcome. Isn't that great news? We can overcome it all. 
We can. That is actually possible. So that's awesome. He's faithful. We can do it. Then he says, listen, not only will I not allow any temptation to come your way that you cannot overcome, but look what he says next. He says, I will provide a way of escape. A way of escape from what? A way of escape from falling for the temptation. Now here's the cool part about this. God is not saying here that He will create a trap door and as we're running toward temptation, Oh, I'm going to take it! The trap door will go, bajink, and you'll slip down it, and end up in righteousness somewhere. Bling! And He'll go, see, see, temptation's there, you run after it, don't worry, the trap door saved you. It's not what God is saying here. He's saying, listen, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what He has equipped you to handle. Why? Because He has equipped you with the Spirit of God, the revelation of Christ, the Gospel. You are a people of God that belong to Him. And so any temptation that comes your way, you can overcome. And here's how you practically overcome it. In every scenario where you are tempted, there will be an escape from falling for the temptation. And that escape will be made visible to you. Now we go, oh, and we, we always preach this, right? You know, if, if you're in a situation, then there'll be some like way to run out the door. It's not actually, it's not actually that. That's again, circumstantial. We always bring it back to circumstances. It's much more powerful and much more awesome than that. Here's what God is saying. I have already given you a means by which you can constantly know how to enter into any circumstance any relational dynamic, any resource dynamic on this planet and be able to enter into it looking for the way by which you can make the gospel beautiful in that scenario. There's always a way. See, what God's saying is this. There's always a way to live so that the gospel will be made beautiful, so that Jesus will be glorified. In every circumstance, whether rich or poor, well-fed or hungry, in prison or free, you can walk in and make the gospel beautiful. So he's saying, there will always be a way. Look for it. Look for the way. And when you walk into temptation, knowing these realities, that you can overcome, and that there is a way to make this circumstance that's tempting you, this relational dynamic that's tempting you, this resource dynamic that's tempting you, you can look at it and say, I do not have to fall. I can make the gospel beautiful here in some way. If you look for that, then here's what's going to happen. You will endure the temptation. See, the beautiful thing about God that I love so much about Him is that He doesn't play this way. He doesn't either go, tell you what, listen, listen. I got this covered I'll keep you from temptation. I'll, keep, I'll, I'll, I'll save you for the future. I'll, I'll, I'll finish the work in you. You just do nothing. You just do nothing. Because the, the second you speak, you mess it up anyway. So just sit still and let me do it, right? He doesn't do that, but he also doesn't do this. Listen, here's the deal. I have the power to save you from temptation, but I ain't going to do it. I'm going to watch you squirm. I'm going to test you to see if you can do it. And if you don't do it, I'll be super disappointed. And if you do do it, I'll cheer you on. Well done, well done. He doesn't do that either. The beauty of God is this, that he comes to us and he says, listen, all the work that needs to be done, I am going to do for you. I am going to establish your salvation. I am going to reveal myself to you. I am going to rescue your soul. I'm going to do it through grace alone so that you can't boast. And by the way, the faith that you had that you brought to the table, I am the author of that faith and the finisher of it. So I give you the faith you need to be able to be saved. I guard your salvation uh, through my power for you. 
I will begin a work in you that I will complete. That's got nothing to do with you either. And I will make all things new. And I will redeem every circumstance, resource, and relationship. And I will make a new earth. And I will make a new heaven. And you will live in it. Wow. Okay. Unbelievable. And then he does this. But you are more than welcome to be part of the story. In fact, I made you to be part of the story. I didn't only rescue your soul, which I've done, and redeem your future, which I've done, but I restored your purpose. Remember that? And what is your purpose? To be an ambassador for Christ, to display the realities of God. And in doing that, it requires active participation on your part. You can actively participate in your own sanctification, even though the work I began in you, I will bring to completion. You can also work at being holy. Be holy as I am holy, he says. You can work at your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I've got your salvation covered, but you can participate in it by actively engaging in faith and actively engaging in pursuing me. Now, I, I've got your story, but you can actively engage in it by working toward overcoming temptation, even though if you don't, it doesn't affect your salvation. I want you to be part of the story. And when temptation comes your way, how will the world ever know that the gospel is beautiful if I simply trapdoor you out every time? I want to watch, have them watch you overcome because it is in your overcoming that the beauty of my power in you is revealed. And so he goes, listen, I will let you participate in this extraordinary story. And how do we participate? By actively watching and engaging in the path of escape so that we can endure the temptation. And what is this active engaging and watching for the path of escape? What is the path of escape? Do you want to overcome temptation every day in your life? Here it is. This is what, this is what God says in multiple other spaces. Remember Colossians chapter 3? Since you are now in Christ, set your minds on things above and not on things below, so that you might overcome. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1? Therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 11, let us cast off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. See, we get to fix our eyes on Christ, set our minds on things above, engage in the reality of holiness, in the intimacy of Christ, and in that space that will always be our pathway out of temptation. We tend, us human beings, we tend to do this. We look at holiness. It doesn't feel nearly as pretty as we thought it would. So we try to find a pathway around holiness without punishment, right? I wonder if, I can, I wonder if there's a, a way I can get around this without like violating the law. That's what we do. What is, the, what is the minimum I have to do not to break it and be punished, right? How far can I go is always the question, right? How far can I go before it's bad? So we try to do around holiness. And here's what he's saying in this passage. You want to overcome the tension between two worlds? Then don't try to find a pathway around holiness. Watch for the pathway into holiness and engage in it every day because you get to. Listen to this. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy. And listen to how he writes. This is a beautiful verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 
So flee youthful passions. That's kind of those desires in the culture that draws us in. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord for a pure heart. He's saying, you want to live free? You want to live in purity? Then pursue holiness and righteousness. That is an active pursuit of, not a passive waiting for. My favorite verse that describes this beautiful dynamic is found in Proverbs chapter 18. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 18. If you want to capture what God is trying to say here completely, you'll capture it right here. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10. Listen to this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Isn't that beautiful? What is this name of the Lord? You, you hear it other places. Remember Colossians chapter 3? Do everything in word and deed in the name of Jesus. Does it mean that we kind of do this? In the name of Jesus, I pick up this Bible. In the name of Jesus, how, 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 are, how are you? In the name of Jesus, let me begin to preach. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to take a sip of water now. Is that what it means? Do everything in the name of Jesus? No, that's not what it means. It means that in light of who he is, in light of what he's done, in light of what he's revealed, the name of Jesus represents everything he is, right? Just like my name represents who I am. In the reality of Christ, that's what it's saying, in the reality of Christ, live there. So this verse literally says this, the reality of Christ is a strong tower. Jesus is a strong tower. He and his ways and, and his principles and his salvation and his redemption and his everything is a strong tower. And the righteous man runs at it because he is safe when he's in it. Our safety is the pursuit of intimacy with Jesus and the pursuit of holiness actively every day. That is our escape path. So what God is saying is this, essentially saying this, just because you're saved, don't be naive enough to think that you will not be overcome by temptation. So in other words, don't live foolishly. Don't just run around up there doing whatever you want and hoping that you don't, you don't get overcome. But also, just because you might be overcome, don't be afraid that you will be overcome because you don't have to be overcome. You have been empowered by God to be a pursuer of righteousness rather than a pursuer of sin. You and I have been empowered for that. So, since God is faithful, he will make sure that there's always a clarity on how to make the gospel beautiful in every circumstance. Look for it, engage in it, pursue it and take it. And when you do, you will find yourself overcoming the temptation that was before you. And don't do it alone because it's all common to man. So start acting vulnerably and live in community together, sharing and confessing your sins to each other so that you might be healed because there's nothing you've done that isn't common to me and nothing I've done that isn't common to you. And so we get to be in this together. And when we're in this together, wise in our pursuit of holiness, unrelenting in our pursuit of Jesus, watchful and vigilant for temptation, and ready to find the way that God has made, we will endure. And when we endure temptation, we will become the church he made us for. Salt and light to the world. Neither hiding from them, nor becoming like them but being in the world, overcoming temptation to demonstrate the power and freedom 
in which we live in Christ. And that is the story we were made for. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. Thank you for all the ways that you have equipped us to be able to walk into the world fearlessly on mission, devoted to you, and, and yet aware of the fact that though we are not immune to being overcome by temptation, we are empowered to overcome it. And that we have the opportunity to choose to engage in the pursuit of holiness actively every day and the pursuit of intimacy with you actively every day so that as we run into your ways, your name, your reality, you, that there we will be safe and we will be able to live in the freedom that you have saved us for. Thank you for your incredible love for us. Thanks for the invitation to participate in your story. Help us to actively look for the way of holiness every day so that we might be overcomers of temptation long before we even need to fight because we are so fixated on you and on your ways. We love you, Jesus. Pray in your precious name. Amen.